0: We are back with a very special edition of Why Wasn't It Better? I am your host, Patrick Darm's,
1: And I'm your co-host, Anton Peras. Anton, why is this
0: a special edition?
1: Is it because it's the season one finale? Exactly. This is, yes, technically the season
0: one finale of our inaugural season of Why Wasn't It Better? This is the 15th film that we've discussed. It's our 16th episode, if you include our intro episode. And of course, we will be, as we confirmed in the last uh, episode, we will be closing out the season after this with a, a, a shorter episode that will involve a recap of the season and a little preview of what is going to come in season two that, that, the, uh, that the listeners can look forward to, where we got another batch of films that need to be discussed and reviewed and in some cases, lampooned. Because some of them are truly worthy of our scorn,
1: others of our love, and praise. And all in all, dear listeners, having a good time doing it. Right here we are, big episode. We've teased it a lot. Oh yeah, Patrick, where are we? Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace.
0: This is the this is the big one. Uh, it's one that we were looking forward to doing the whole time that we've been doing this podcast so far. So far, I think we very briefly debated doing this as our very first episode but i think we made the right decision there. number 1 planet of the apes was so entertaining to talk about. number 2 this would have been quite a behemoth to tackle on our very first episode. i don't know if it, i think we're there's, we're just we're much better prepared for this now.
1: There's a few things, right? Like there's low-hanging fruit and then there's literally a fruit stand where hey, here is literally a perfect example of your podcast and not only is it a perfect example it's one of the most perfect examples
0: yes we're not calling it a perfect movie don't be fooled oh no (laughs) oh no but yeah no this is uh this this particular movie represents everything that our podcast is about why you want to talk about why wasn't it better no teasers here. When we talked about this, uh, when we covered the Matrix Reloaded, and like what were the most hyped movies of all time, this is number one. It's it's probably not close, but we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Anything you want to mention before we start?
1: This is a pretty big franchise to comment <laughs> big. on. Like to to and when I think of the films that we reviewed up to date, a few of the hallmark. Franchises include, of course, James Bond, Jurassic Park, but I think something that really is so widespread and really spans across so many different subsections of fandom, Star Star Wars is just huge. And so I'm excited to talk about this. I know there's been a million people that have also talked about this film and this franchise, but I'm excited to talk about it with you, because I feel like we both have a very special place for Star Wars in our hearts, and all of this, I feel like, comes out of love.
0: It does come from a place of love. I'll concede that for sure. And you're right. This is the biggest franchise that there is. Even something like Marvel, which has really become quite a behemoth over the past 15 years, It's probably not close to being as popular as Star Wars. Maybe maybe with younger kids at this point. I don't know. I don't know how you'd measure that or quantify that. But Star Wars reigns supreme. This is probably going to be our longest episode. I have an awful lot of Trade Federation questions for you just as a
1: little preview. But before (laughs) we get into this, the meat of this. All right. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's right. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a young apprentice Jedi Knight under the tutelage of Qui-Gon Jinn and Anakin Skywalker who will later father Luke Skywalker and become known as Darth Vader, is just a nine-year-old boy. When the nefarious Trade Federation cuts off all routes to the planet Naboo, Quagon and Obi-Wan are assigned to settle the matter. And that sets the stage of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. It was released on May 19th, 1999 by Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox, written and directed by George Lucas. Starring Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Jake Lloyd, Ian McDiarmid, and Ray Park. <laughs> Budget, 115 million, so 208 million adjusted for inflation. And this got me. Box office, 924 million, 1.6 billion adjusted for inflation, and the movie did officially top 1 billion with a 2012 3D release. Wow. Some big numbers there really set the stage. Big numbers. Pat, why Why did, why do we choose this film? We had to choose this.
0: This is it. I mean, this is the big one. This was, we teased this a little bit, a couple of minutes ago, but I mean, this, this is the most highly anticipated movie of all time. And I don't think there's a close second.
1: Yeah, there's, man, it's just so huge because there's a. The, the the box office numbers tell you so much, right? That there was such a huge anticipation for the return to this franchise. And well, quite frankly, uh it's hard to tell folks like it's it's hard for me to tell folks like this is it, like this is the big one, because I oh I don't wanna make them feel like every movie that we review after this is just not as uh just not as a fair comparison, but this is quite a big film to review. So I'm excited to dive into this for season one. Yeah,
0: definitely. It is hard to articulate. If you're a certain age, like we are, you'll, you'll appreciate that the level of hype that was involved in this movie. If you're a little younger, I I think the contemporary comparison, the closest thing would be Avengers Endgame, but it still wasn't as big as, as the, the lead no. up to this movie. Cause you know, when i fr- i was going to ask you what your relationship with star wars is like i'll tell you mine first so i saw the movie the original trilogy of course when i was a little little kid on vhs this would have been the early 90s and like everybody else we never thought we were actually going to get any more star wars movies like return of the jedi was the end you know we i knew it my cousins were big star wars fans my parents were not star wars fans so i i I inherited my Star Wars lore from my older cousins, right? And at that point, as a kid, I knew that Lucas had planned a sequel trilogy, but he decided not to do it. At some point during the eighties, all we had were the original trilogy and the expanded universe stuff. And the, but the closest thing we got to a, like a sequel was like those really bad made-for-TV Ewok movies, which I have not seen <laughs> since the early nineties. And so, Quick hit question. It Quick yes. question.
1: As a fan, when when you were a kid, who was your favorite character in the Star Wars universe? Definitely Han Solo. Han Solo. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's
0: solid pick. Yeah, it's probably a cliched choice, but by that point, I had also seen Indiana Jones too, and I just I was like, oh, well, he Harrison Ford's cool. Like Mm -hmm. this is the cool character. You know, cliched choice, but I'm sure a lot of other people would would pick him as well. But I have to say, now looking back on it, as much as I adore the original trilogy and as much as i i read a lot of the expanded universe books i played a bunch of the video games i liked the clone wars series that was on was that was it on the disney show? no it was on cartoon network cartoon in network. the 2000s right. i i saw most of that and i liked it but at this point i'm not a star wars fan not anymore i'll always have love for the original trilogy and and what those represent But I don't consider myself a Star Wars fan anymore. It's important to remember before this particular movie came out, Phantom Menace, in the lead up to 1999, Star Wars was definitely a cultural phenomenon, but I would best describe the original trilogy back then. They were just very well-loved blockbusters. Star Wars has become something else entirely over the past 20 plus years, particularly after Disney bought the franchise from Lucas. And of course, in 1997, I was beyond thrilled when Lucas released those the, spe- the special editions of the original trilogy for the you know the 20th anniversary of A New Hope. So I got to see the original trilogy in the theaters again, which was amazing. And by that point, we knew Phantom Menace was coming. So that that had added to the excitement. So the the hype for this particular movie was like a three-plus-year thing. The only other movie I, I was ever really that excited for was a couple years later when the first Lord of the Rings
1: came out. Even though
0: I was really excited for Matrix Reloaded, it just doesn't come close to this.
1: What about you? I will say now I'm still a huge fan, and I was a huge fan as a kid. And for me, it was being introduced to the original VHS VHSs at the library. Just because that's where really I fell in love with film was checking out VHS movies from the library and watching it home, and the Star Wars movies really resonated, and just been a big fan ever since. Same with you in terms of the books, the comics, uh, the action figures, just everything. Um, Being able to consume that, probably an embarrassing amount of times where pretended to have a lightsaber and um, flail that around, but at the end of the day i was so hyped for this movie so so hyped i think that i maybe i didn't appreciate it as much as young adults or adults at the time that had grown up with the original trilogy but i was just excited for a continuation of the story that while the idea and like the like the the plot telling or the the plot devices the tropes the character development it was a lot of things that had been across so many stories and media over time, the way that it was packaged for star Wars was so unique that really just captured folks attention. Being able to see, being able to see that there was a new film coming out was very, very exciting for me. So yeah, I was very hyped and I was fun fact. I was actually in the Philippines when I saw when I saw it in theaters. So there was also that, that was also just a very core memory for me.
0: Did you see it
1: with subtitles or did you
0: see it in English? I saw it in English. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah. my next question would have been, did they change the voices of the nemoidians for international <laughs> audiences?
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, still I, I rem- goofy accents, huh? It's still, still the, still that, uh, distinct nemoidian alien
0: accent. Oh, Anton, don't worry. I have an entire section of my notes dedicated yeah. to my thoughts about the Nemoidians. I'm choosing my words carefully. <laughs> I think at this point, so much has been said about this movie already. This movie has been talked about so much already. We're going to try to add something to the conversation. Um, but...
1: What you touched on this earlier, and I'd love to just noodle around on this. Were there, have there been any other franchises that had a hype, or, or even films that had such hype for its release since *Phantom Menace*? Yeah, *Matrix Reloaded* for sure. The hype for that was right. was immense.
0: *Lord of the Rings* definitely. I don't know about all the *Harry Potter* movies, but definitely the first and the last one. They were super yeah, hyped. Very hyped. Mm, yeah. *Avengers: Endgame*. And I, I think we omitted Force Awakens on the Matrix Reloaded episode. But I, I guess you got to throw that in there.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm Anything trying to think. Anything
0: else? Maybe some like, of the Avengers movies. But a lot of the Marvel movies, are, they just kind of blend together. The, the end game was a different thing. That was I couldn't get tickets for that for a week
1: when it came out. That's how big that movie was. Right. Maybe like The Dark Knight is a big one. Yeah, that's a good one a lot of especially hype with there. what
0: happened to Heath Ledger before it came out. Exactly. Yeah, that exactly. was pretty big. But uh, nothing comes close to this one though. I don't I, no. I don't think we're ever going to see hype like this again. But anyway, let's dive into the production history of this of this movie. Following the release of Return of the Jedi in 1983, talks of a follow-up sequel were proposed, but Lucas was uninterested in returning to the franchise. Plans for a sequel trilogy were officially canceled. The rest of the 1980s was pretty uneventful slash eventful for George Lucas. He suffered an extremely expensive divorce. He worked on the next two Indiana Jones movies with his buddy, Steven Spielberg, and he produced such noteworthy films as Labyrinth, Howard the Duck, Willow, and Tucker, the man in his dream. Who could forget? Howard the Duck was noteworthy. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's noteworthy for being like a massive box office
1: bomb. I felt like he lost a bet, and that's why he directed Howard the Duck.
0: He or didn't direct it. He, yeah, yeah, he produced. He it. produced it. Yeah, as we know, he uh um he does not direct a lot, right? Right. So at some point in the early nineties, Lucas decided there was still enough interest in the franchise to merit a return to the story. After seeing Jurassic Park, he also decided that CGI had gotten to the level that required that he required for the prequel trilogy's visual effects. And at some point, he asked Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote the script for Empire Strikes Back, to write the script for this one. But Kasdan declined. So Lucas began working on the script for episode one as early as 1994. The film's working title was The Beginning. The title of The Phantom Menace did not get announced until shortly before the film was completed at some point in 1998. Early treatments for this film did not feature Qui-Gon Jinn they simply had obi-wan by himself as a jedi knight. Qui-gon was added as obi-wan's master after a couple of edits and they wanted to lucas wanted the whole passing of the torch thing to take place there. So, here's a good note for you. After the film's release at some point, Ron Howard confirmed that he, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg were approached by Lucas to direct this. All three of them obviously didn't end up doing it. They turned it down because they felt that Lucas should direct his own project. And they found it quote too daunting. Think about that. Huge, three
1: huge names, especially in
0: that time. Huge. Probably would have been better if any of the three had directed it, but you know, let's not, uh, let's not get to that discussion point just yet. (laughs) So the (laughs) undertaking for this movie was immense. Pre-production and design work for the film began as early as 1994 before Lucas even began writing the script, producer Rick McCallum was the key player in all the development. Star Wars fans will absolutely know who Rick McCallum is. He produced the, the prequel trilogies, but he's very prominently featured in the um, very, very famous making of documentary of this movie, which you can find on the DVD. And also it's probably on YouTube. Now, as far as the role of Anakin Skywalker, that was a huge point of who was going to play this, this character, Right. 3000 actors auditioned for the role one of whom included haley joel Osmond.
1: that was a big Interesting. name big name yeah. in the late 90s
0: kind of a missed opportunity if you ask me cuz we we ended up getting jake lloyd who played young anakin uh, we'll get to him a little bit later
1: i i feel like jake lloyd's been doing stuff now like recently is he? i think he just i i think he just got a job at uh at applebees
0: that's who that was okay i don't want to say too many bad things about him i you know he's had a uh he's had a rough go of it oh a lot of folks in this film yeah. have had a rough go with it that's true yeah uh
1: and uh yeah and enough said about that but um fun name approaching benicio del toro was originally cast as darth maul think about that folks Wild, but later left the project when most of the characters' lines were cut. Most, if not all, <laughs> Darth Maul has only three lines of dialogue in the finished film. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll tempt this. Peter Sarah Finowitz, who voiced Maul, was has stated in an interview that he actually recorded much more dialogue for Maul that never ended up in the film. And what's interesting about that to me is that when you watch the clone wars animated um, series and the, and the and the uh, 3d or CGI anime uh, series as well, mall has considerably much more lines. So it's not like he's a mute character. I always thought like, Oh, his character is just mute. He has but, more lines in the novelization as well. Oh, thank you. Great product placement. Um, Joseph Fiennes auditioned for the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi and nearly landed the part until George Lucas's young daughter rejected him upon meeting him during the second level of auditioning. But Liam Neeson was so eager to be in the film that he signed on without having read the script. (laughs) Well, what do you know? (laughs)
0: There's always a bigger script.
1: (laughs) I think that uh, having the pair of them that was a big plus for the film. Definitely. Yeah, we we so, dodged a bullet without yeah, not having Joseph Fiennes in this movie. Yeah. According to a Mod Best in a Rolling Stone article, Michael Jackson campaigned for the role of Jar Jar Binks, but George Lucas decided against casting him because his star status would compromise the film. Um, sh- that was a really good... Um, diplomacy by George Lucas using the word "the star status" being the compromising factor. I would love to know more about Michael Jackson's quote-unquote campaign for this role. It's like what? What did that involve? <laughs> he 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 drew himself with crayons and said, "Look, I would I'd be really good as Jar Jar." The majority of filming took place between June and September of 1997, primarily taking place at Leavesden. Film studios in in England. A rough cut was completed by May nineteen ninety eight, and pickups were shot between August nineteen ninety eight and February nineteen ninety nine. While the while the film was shot on thirty five millimeter film, Lucas later revealed that two shots were filmed on early prototype digital cameras and challenged audiences to identify them. So fun playing around with the way the movie was shot. Patrick, anything that you you've seen in in the making of of this film? to kind of add to the to the shooting i have examples of during our
0: discussion points of where i will call upon the making of documentary of this film anyone who calls themselves a serious star wars fan has seen it and if you're interested check it out it really is a fascinating behind the scenes documentary i'm kind of amazed they actually allowed it to go public because there's some let's just call it very revealing things about this movie's problems that are quite evident in that documentary.
1: There's something that's missing in today's, in the way that movies are consumed today through streaming sites, that there is a beauty to dusting off DVDs and box sets, including the making of, behind the scenes, director's commentaries, all of that fun stuff. So listeners, look for it. Go find it and dive into the making of, because that will add to your film experience. So to continue on, post-production took over a full year. So a lot of cuts, a lot of things hitting the cutting room floor. About 1,950 of the shots in The Phantom Menace have visual effects. The scene in which toxic gas is released on the Jedi is the only, se- on, is the only sequence with no digital alteration. Quick, they, uh, quick
0: anecdote. Yeah, this has almost two thousand CGI shots in it. The original Jurassic Park has sixty-three, just for some perspective.
1: Yeah, that's how much well, CGI took a quantum leap in the six years before, prior to this. Insane. Yeah, but I'm also glad that they decided to use real toxic gas.
0: Yes, it's amazing that um, Obi Wan and what's his name Qui Gon made it out of that room alive.
1: Yeah. The work was so extensive that the that three visual effects supervisors divided divided the workload among themselves. John Knoll supervised onset production and the pod race and space battle sequences. Dennis Miran supervised the underwater sequence and the ground battle, and Scott Squires alongside teams assigned for miniature effects and character animation worked on the lightsaber effects. Sorry, I'm smiling because as I read all of this and thinking about the scenes, I think back to the making-of portion of the DVDs and seeing Quagon and Obi-Wan in front of a green screen pretending to swim.
0: Uh, you have to
1: feel bad for them in a way. You know Lucas yeah. was just like, Yeah, just
0: make, pretend like you're swimming.
1: <laughs> yeah, just just dive real hard.
0: Yeah, hold your breath.
1: So sets were built only as high as the tops of the actors' heads, and computer graphics filled in the rest. Liam Neeson was so tall that he cost the set crew an extra hundred fifty thousand dollars in construction. Stick so I've seen him, him in real life.
0: I, tall man. I walked. I walked by Liam Neeson on the street in New York one day, and I'm I'm six foot three. He's two or three inches taller than me. He's huge. Oh, he's a solid six five. I, He's one of the most intimidating people I've ever, I don't want to say met, but he's one of the most intimidating people I've ever come across. He was dressed kind of just like his character is in the movie Taken, which was funny.
1: And he was eating. He was walking really fast.
0: He looked like he was on a mission, but I'm sure he just lived around there. But anyway,
1: keep going. He was trying to find the closest Wegmans. (laughs) He might have been. the effects were barely finished in time for the film's release. Foreshadowing his future uh, conversion to digital cinematography, Lucas said the film would be shown on four digital projectors, two in New York and two in Los Angeles, on June 18th, 1999. So pretty wild that this technology was being used back then. I didn't have, I, I had no idea that was happening. and So pretty surprising. Yeah. We mentioned the box office performance of the film according to the wall street journal so many workers uh, announced plans to review the premiere that many companies closed on opening day it's estimated that 2 million full-time employees called out of work to see this and that's not even counting um, all of the that's probably not even counting all of the workers that had to camp out before the day one release <laughs> Yeah. Shout out to my dad who uh, somehow got tickets
0: so that my friend and I could go on opening day. And I say sh- I just want to thank my dad because he hates Star Wars. He didn't want to see this.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> how how long did you wait in line for your seats? Uh, I not long. Hmm. It, I don't. It wasn't like I don't remember it being like some crazy. Like, trying to get into a concert or anything. It was pretty straightforward. But I'm, I was also 11 years old, so what did I know?
1: Mm. So, Phantom Menace became the fastest-selling DVD ever in the United States. Uh, the record was later broken by superior film Shrek. Definitely superior. And uh, I love and hate it. A 51% Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes score. Which is surprising. That means there's enough people that you know can say that they like it i don't know 51 is not great it's not great but i don't know i would have i would have expected lower but uh,
0: i don't think it got bad reviews when it came out i think it was like
1: mixed that's fair i do remember that but people wanted I, to see it
0: yeah i think a, probably a, i think a lot of critics thought it was okay but you know that old saying like it's all about the fans right and you know that old saying: No one hates Star Wars
1: like a Star Wars fan. Oh man, you'd think they would—they didn't even want to see that. Th- They—they hate it so much they have to see it seven more times to complain about it. I think I saw it twice. Yeah, but
0: I've—I've I've seen the film.
1: Oh, I mean in the theaters. Yeah. I've seen this, oh, in this movie in total probably like fifty times. Oh yeah, it's a uh, yeah. I've also rewatched quite a bit and. I feel like opening up CGI, too, just I, I just want to before we dive into why wasn't it better introducing CGI to George Lucas meant taking out the wolf man from the original um, A New Hope uh, cantina scene. And I just wanted to give a shout out to random wolf costume they found and included in that scene. They took that out, too. Mm hmm.
0: He's, he's changed so many things about the original trilogy. It's hard to keep track.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Shouts out, Wolfman. But here we are. Why wasn't it better? And then, Patrick, did you want to say a few words before we start diving in?
0: Yes. Before we get into the actual reasons of why wasn't this movie better, I want to start with a disclaimer. Everything that we're going to say about George Lucas None of it is personal. Everything that we know about him, he seems like a genuinely nice person. He's been extraordinarily giving with a lot of his wealth. Our problems are strictly limited to his creative decisions that he made on on this particular film and the next two prequel films. The other part of the disclaimer is it is impossible to even discuss this movie without mentioning the Red Letter Media review.
1: Yep, shouts out to Red Letter Media.
0: Yes, I have a quote from that that I want to read because I think it is it 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 encapsulates this movie perfect, perfectly. Quote, The Phantom Menace is now the greatest example of cinematic blue balls in the history of motion pictures. Never again will anything be more wildly anticipated or a bigger disappointment. End quote. Let's get into the reasons now.
1: Okay, well, reason number one. The storytelling and tonal shifts. Patrick, what are your thoughts on the storytelling of this film? Well, I
0: think it's pathetic, but you can blame that on George Lucas. And I have a quote Mm -hmm. from George Lucas himself that I think really sums up the issues with this movie. Writing the script was much more enjoyable this time around because I wasn't constrained by anything. You can't write one of these movies without knowing how you're going to accomplishment. With CG at my disposal, I knew I could do whatever I wanted. End quote. You see the problem with this already? Right. With CG at my disposal, I knew I could do whatever I wanted. Lucas was given too much power here. And you can see this yeah. in the making of documentary. And there was no one to bounce ideas off of, no one to mm-hmm. tell him no. People were afraid to correct him. I don't know why he just didn't hire a writer again. He didn't really... Seemed like
1: he didn't want to direct this because he asked other people to do it. I think it just turns into lazily shooting and then just saying, oh, we can fix it in the production or "Oh, we'll just CGI that. You saw a lot of that in the documentary, right?
0: Yeah, we'll just fix it in post. He could not help himself on this movie. He really cornballed it up with some really childish dialogue, some slapstick humor. This is what I call the George Lucas paradox he didn't seem to be able to decide if these movies were for kids or not. Because you remember that it's a very famous quote mm-hmm. from him as well. Like years later, when he was trying to defend this movie, Lucas would insist that these movies are, quote, like really just for kids. But I don't know anybody that would really agree with that. The original trilogy, they were movies that kids could watch and most kids did watch them, but nobody ever described them as kids mm-hmm. movies, if you know what I mean. Right, exactly. The original trilogy, it has some corny stuff in it. There are cornball lines in it, but none of them ever resorted to slapstick humor. I'm talking about all the Jar Jar Binks stuff. I'm talking about all of Anakin's lines. Yippee! Now this is pod racing. Let's try spinning. That's a good trick.
1: Are you an angel?
0: I miss my mom. (laughs) And here's the paradox of it, right? Why on earth did Lucas think that Any of the stuff about the Trade Federation and the Senate bureaucracy, like you can't say that the movie's for kids and then include this stuff. And that's why I don't believe him when he says that these movies are really for kids. He inserted a lot of stuff in there that maybe he thought would appeal to kids, but the actual story of this movie is not a kid's story at all. The story should have focused Mm -hmm. more on Anakin, his life, his upbringing, maybe something about his powers that doesn't just involve pod racing, his life as a slave. I don't know. But we get this incredibly boring trade dispute. Anakin gets – he doesn't get introduced until halfway through the film. Now, I find this fascinating because in the novelization, the entire first chapter is entirely about Anakin and pod raising. And if you want to talk about the context of this movie applying – as far as it being the first part of a trilogy – the plot lines that they set up in episode two, I don't want to get too much into uh, Attack of the Clones, but I, I'm going to have to mention it here. It would have much—it would have made a lot more sense to introduce Dooku and the separatist movement in this film. Instead, it just kind of pops up in Attack of the Clones. The Sifo-Dyas plot, that should have been covered here as well, but none of that's set up here. You see where I'm yeah. getting at?
1: I, I, I agree with you. I think there's... There's a a lot hinted right in that first quote by Lucas and that conflict of what is the identity of the film, like you said, is displayed very well in just not knowing the identity, whether it's trying to find some sort of semblance in a plot with the trade federation stuff. Maybe do we appeal appeal? In terms of like i could totally see like the studio saying hey we need to make sure that this film this film appeals to families and kids so trying to make the trying to make anakin also appeal to young viewers and then that's why you also throw in a character like jar jar but at the same time there probably is a part of lucas that says you know what i want to make this film also speak to the lore and what I love about Star Wars, which is like the cool sci-fi aspect. So then he's throwing in characters like Darth Maul, throwing in um the more more aspects that we'd expect of like a Star Wars film. There's and a lot in this movie, yeah, yeah. But then with that, you have a film that doesn't have quite an identity from a storytelling point, and along no. other areas that don't have that same identity. Um, if it was up to me, total. You do totally include um, Dooku in the first one, if anything, to show like some sort of uh, shift change um, into the Sith in the second one, um, or somehow just like really showing more of an arc uh, that makes more sense throughout three films versus just introducing him in the second. Yeah, my my
0: biggest problem with this movie's story at the at the very highest level is if you if you look at it in co- in the context of being the first part of a trilogy, right? This feels way more like a prologue to a new trilogy than it does actually being part one of a trilogy. Think about it, you mm-hmm. get the ten year time jump between this and Episode Two. One of the main characters, Qui Gon Jinn, he isn't even in the next two films at all. We didn't need to see Child Anakin. You can basically, if you wanted to watch the Star Wars movies, you can basically skip this and just start with Attack of the Clones, and you don't really miss out on anything story wise. That's kind. That's a big negative,
1: I think. And I think that's where identity of the film just not having the identity set, not having a good writer to really set the tone, is what is one of like the the key points to look at of just how how poor how poor this film was able to communicate that You're i think that right. yeah right. and and, I, and and i think that when i look at anakin and i look at presenting his childhood and his story i am i am curious about it i am fascinated because on paper it's like a force sensitive child premonition mm-hmm. He shouldn't be able to pod race, but he does. These are elements that I'm sure you could write well into a film, but the execution was very poor, especially when you consider how to play the tone of it. He just kind of comes off as a snotty kid. Yeah, um, you you articulated it really well when you said like the lack of identity
0: that extends to everything about the storytelling of this movie, including the characters. One of the most common criticisms of this movie is that there isn't really a protagonist and That's a very fair criticism. If you really think about it, it's not Qui-Gon. It's not Obi-Wan. It's not really even Anakin, because Anakin doesn't show up until halfway Mm -hmm. into the movie. It's not Padme either. None of the characters are particularly interesting. They're all boring. They all speak in the same monotone. None of them have a character arc. Nobody is given a backstory, except for Anakin. Okay, he's a slave on this planet. Okay, fine. Nobody really has emotions other than Anakin being sad. Because he has to leave his mother. Darth Vader is one of the most popular characters of all time. Would you agree with that? A million percent. Yes. Some of that I think comes from his mystique. Even though in the original trilogy you ended up learning a little bit more about him, he was still a pretty mysterious character. Showing Anakin as a child to me, I agree with you. The potential for that to be interesting was there, but the way that they. Executed it, it showed him in a way that nobody really wanted to see. This, if you uh, th- ultimately, what is Star Wars if you were going to boil it down and like describe it to somebody, right? The way I would describe it is it is about the rise, fall, and redemption of Anakin Skywalker set a- against the backdrop of this galactic civil war, right? That's ultimately what the, star- the story is. Showing Anakin as a nine
1: year old boy like this accomplishes nothing. So something I just want to touch on where I think that there, I haven't seen it explicitly. This is just a theory of mine. Um, A series that I read, I've I've reread recently was Dune. You're familiar with Dune. And when I think of the story of like savior type character, that is pushed into the role of like hero so rise and then also within that same character the storytelling in dune was about not being able to put all your chips in and not totally just put your full trust in like a savior type because what results right in the future sequels of dune is um, just seeing what can come of that including thing horrible things of course like genocide um, and continue and all done in the name of just putting one's faith in just like the savior type. Now, the way it was told in Dune was like much more explicit, much more violent. Um, but you do see a bit of that. A lot of those parallels when you look at the Anakin Skywalker character who is really being pushed as a small child into this role of like, uh, the, the, the chosen one. And I feel like Lucas really looked at stories that tell about like how do you, how, how do you set up a character that's supposed to be the chosen one and then also portray their fall? Maybe he didn't want to go to as far as like the level of, as far as like, how the level of how, I would say how hard they go in Dune. But at the same time, he was trying to appeal to a mass audience with this film. And I feel like just because he couldn't, again, he couldn't clamp onto that identity. It was hard to execute. And with a story like this and with expectations for Darth Vader, like as this kid, you you can't, you can't waffle on it. No, completely agree.
0: Other characters, uh, I guess it's time to talk about Jar Jar Banks. I don't want to spend too much time on this no. on him, but it's impossible not to cover him. It's he he is as terrible a character as as everything that you hear. I hated him even as a kid. I don't know anyone that likes him. I've never heard a good defense of him. It's it's the kind of slapstick, frustrating com- comic relief. It's it was it wasn't funny to me as a kid. Maybe little kids no. would find it funny but the he, he watching this recently he has a lot more screen time than i remember too he's in he's almost every scenes. scene and lucas wrote him in a way that he resorted to like poop jokes with him he's kind of a fascinating character when you talk about like movies in general because it really is an example of... I Like I said, I have never heard anyone make any kind of a reasonable defense of this
1: character. He was and continues to be universally despised. In terms I of think, just like... Sorry, I was just going to say in terms of like cast of characters in parallel to other Star Wars films. He's like the antithesis to like Chewie. Yes. Yes. It's... <sighs>
0: I think the only reason they made him such a uh, a prominent character was to prove to the industry that they could pull off a fully integrated CGI character. But this goes along with the writing. I don't even think he's animated competently.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's not animated realistically, right? They Every movement that he does is exaggerated. He, he almost is animated like he's Roger Rabbit. A mm. lot of spins and like, oh, all over yep. the place. Getting his tongue stuck in stuff. horrible it's and lucas tried to defend him later i don't know if you um saw this interview where he said he said well nobody really likes c-3po either at first that's a bunch of bullshit i never heard a conversation about c-3po being hated now 3po was nobody's favorite character but nobody ever had a conversation about how how much 3po sucked and how he was detrimental to, to those original films and we talked i mentioned the screen time um jar jar has about the same amount of screen time in this movie as anakin and obi-wan just let that sink in
1: i i will say like something that something that got separated from or something that's hard to separate is an actor's performance and what was written for them and then what was included in the film and how much people universally hated Jar Jar Binks uh, really messed up the actor for Jar Jar mentally. Yeah, so, yeah, I was I was really happy to read like recently that he's been able to kind of come to terms of just like accepting like his place in that role, just moving on from it. And then he was even included in the recent um in the recent Mandalorian series, portraying like a Jedi, but. I think wait Jarjo well, or the actor the actor
0: yeah. okay i was going to say if they made yeah. Jarjo into a jedi oof yeah no um
1: no you're yeah, right that's, though that's this is not a, ahmed best's fault this is this is yeah. this is on lucas this is on lucas and it's just it, it's just a shame because there's such a thing right as like too much of a good thing this was too much of a bad thing <laughs> yes but Anton, was he the only goofy character in the movie? Oh, no. I think there was a, so many goofy characters, but I'm sure you have one in mind that we want to talk about. I want to talk about my favorite characters in the movie, which is the Nemoidians. The Nemoid Nemoidian hour. Here we go. Look.
0: Racial overtones aside, they are probably my favorite thing about the movie. I find their dialogue incredibly quotable. They're also they're also butt ugly. They're um, butt ugly. They, it's really awkward, like Muppet costumes that these actors are wearing. But I just remember, like, they're introduced as to us It within, I would say, 90 seconds into the movie. And it is just, as you know, a blockade is perfectly legal. <laughs> I can't get over the dialogue. I just can't get over the dialogue. They've gone
1: up the ventilation shaft. Oh, my. Uh, and and some of the Nemo- Nemoidians, the way they're dressed, they have, like, the metal eyes and then metal mouth thing
0: yes makes no sense it Uh, doesn't it's not explained my favorite line though comes from i think it's newt gunray after he talks mm -hmm. to sidious when he introduces darth ball and he's like this is getting out of hand now there are two of them
1: (laughs) (laughs) and just like complete and just like in general they they just uh completely unaware of the power of jedi like what? Well, the one of them was remember because when at, when uh, when Qui Gon is
0: like burning through the door, right? The other one's like, we will not survive
1: this. <laughs> and then they're like, just close the second door; they won't get past that one.
0: They are still coming through.
1: Uh <laughs> we should not have oh, made this lawyers. bargain. <laughs> Look, oh, it's, no more, it's yeah. it is
0: ridiculous. They're written ridiculous. They're portrayed ridiculous. They're completely incompetent. They are some of the weakest villains ever put in a movie. But are we sure that the Trade Federation aren't the good guys here? They're just trying to, I guess, get something off the planet Naboo, and and they don't want to pay taxes.
1: They just they are just they had to, to blockade the planet, Anton. They had to do it. Economically, they were just trying to make the best decision for them and their shareholders. Right, we can all identify with that as capitalists, right? Exactly. It's a capitalist system. They were just trying to figure out ways to do that. They, they they just wanted a free trade. They wanted a free trade system. Don't we all? Don't we all? No, not everyone does, but that's okay. <laughs> speaking of, uh, speaking of characters in the film that that we enjoy. I was, I was so hyped for Darth Maul. I Same. was, I remember there was a, a, some of the promotional tie-ins to the film where you could go to different um, there that some eyeglasses stores were um, promoting the contact lenses that look like his eyes. <laughs> Oof. And I was just like, that can't be good for you. So Sound- um, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah so promoted very heavily for the film and i remember even in the trailers no dialogue and thinking okay they're like really hyping up like this villain who he is but he actually doesn't do a whole lot uh um, no no he doesn't and i get i was so disappointed in the end that he really was just like he he wasn't, he didn't even feel like the main antagonist, in my opinion. He just kind of felt more like, here's a chess piece, like, go do really cool flips and shit with your dual lightsaber. Now, the dual lightsaber, I think, was like super sick. Cause what's cooler than one lightsaber? Let's make two of them and put oh, them it's against so cool. each other. The lightsaber fight in this movie is, I think, the yeah. best lightsaber light fight in the series. And, and not only because of the choreography but the pacing the timing the anticipation it builds when they're waiting for the different portions and they're meditating in between the fights very very cool the pacing of that fight
0: was great the pacing of this movie is one of the biggest storytelling weaknesses this movie Mm. there are large stretches of this movie that are very boring and that is in that is no doubt due to the pacing
1: and that should not be in a star wars film
0: like that's no. horrendous. There's action, and then things slow down. The entire second act on Tatooine, some of the slowest scenes in in the series, right? Right. And it's it's one of the most famous scenes. Probably the most famous scene in the movie is the pod race, right? Mm-hmm. It's visually spectacular. It sounds amazing if you have a good sound system, but it goes it goes over 10 minutes and it has minimal impact on the plot. And I do think it has a
1: negative effect on the runtime of this movie. Uh, I mean, I think you get plot wise. They fit it in because Anakin had to win the race to get the part and his freedom. Did he right? (laughs) Did he? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, Jedi mind tricks don't work on, uh, don't work on uh i forget i forget his race watto uh, on, he's on, a toy yeah on on watto's race yeah work. by the way
0: uh you want to talk um if you thought the nemoidians had goofy accents watto <laughs> i'm
1: it not going to do that voice yeah uh, it was just uh questionable yes questionable
0: but look i, I look the editing, I mean, the editing goes in with the pacing. It's choppy. It's tonally inconsistent. The four final battles that we have put together, right? They exemplify the pacing problems, I think, more than anything else. So you go from the most, the coolest, most intense lightsaber yep. duel we've ever seen. And then, but the problem is that it's cross cut with this naked gun style slapstick humor with Jar Jar Binks in this battle on the surface of Naboo, right?
1: Right. That was a
0: very boring battle. Yeah, we're going back and forth between something that's admittedly exhilarating and something that is, frankly, painful to watch 24 years later. And,
1: yeah, the the, the Gungan battle scene, not fun. Anakin in the sh- in Starfighter, in um starfighter He not just fun. blows
0: up the droid control ship via a series of coincidences. Not fun. No. And then you have Amidala and her guards just shooting their way through the palace, which has no tension. They're just shooting
1: a bunch of battle droids. The only, I think, and the only thing about the scenes with Padme that really can drive any attention is like, oh, well, you know, she's integral to the plot. I hope nothing bad happens to her, but you know, nothing bad's going to happen to her. At right. Least in that
0: film. Right. Or her decoy, which they, again, pointless. Yeah.
1: Keira <laughs> Knightley played the decoy, by the way. Did you know that? I did know that. Great. Uh, great call out to um, Keira. Good, good shouts out to Keira Knightley. We'll have her on the show soon.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it.
1: Got a lot of questions yep. for her
0: about her and her, her enjoyment in making this movie. Because <laughs> I know Natalie Portman did not enjoy making this movie. But no, the whole, the whole finale of this movie is... It's also a lot, too. Even if you think Return of the Jedi, which had the biggest finale of the original trilogy, that only had mm-hmm. three action scenes that were being cross-cut. This has right. a, a fourth one added to it, and only one of them really works you know the, the gungan battle you you mentioned it. it's a waste of Gung- gungan lives we get a lot of cornball humor thrown in there like ouch time from captain tarples jaja uh, ja. Uh, we saw in big Doodoo now um, like i don't know how we're supposed to take that seriously as a as a viewer and that's part of the problem with the george lucas paradox right he is we're ha- we have this big finale with four different action scenes going on we are supposed to take it seriously but like Qui Gon's death is supposed to be something that's extremely serious to the story. It's 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 solemn. It's tragic, and yet we immediately cut to Jar Jar with a, a battle droid attached to his leg, like flailing around on the battlefield and making all these goofy Muppet noises. Who is this movie supposed to be for? Is it supposed to be for adults or is it supposed to be
1: for kids? Lucas could never figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's just and it's just a shame. Um where I think because no one says no to Lucas and yeah. Lucas has just full control. We've talked about this in films before where directors are given too much control and there's no constraints to pull out creativity. It's like, instead of throwing in more, it's actually just making noise. It, it, it well, the throwing in more and making noise versus trying to refine and i feel like that's what this ending was it was just a ton of noise it
0: definitely was and the making of documentary shows this you touched on it too much control no one was willing to say no you can really you can really tell in that very famous part of the documentary when they're viewing the rough cut and it's becoming clear to everyone in that little theater that the plot makes no sense but lucas brushes it off he's like i may have i may have gone too far in a few places He realizes that the tone is all over the place, right? And again, we go one scene where mourning Qui-Gon Jinn and then we go to this cheesy comedy. There's no segue, but it's difficult to edit around that when you've already finished the movie, right? Exactly. And then before we get to the plot holes of this movie and our next reason, I do think most of the action in this movie is boring. It's dull. There's really no drama in seeing these two Jedi Knights cut down dozens of like stupid looking battle droids. We never get the sense that they're in any real danger. The droids don't even look menacing, right? Like I, they don't have to look like the T 800 from the Terminator, but if you think about the Dark Troopers from the Mandalorian, they look pretty cool and intimidating. These battle droids are just goofy looking.
1: Yeah, they're very like duck like almost. With just like the yes. Bill-style head? Yes. And before again, before we get to the plot holes,
0: um, our friend Taylor wanted me to talk about this. Okay. How um George Lucas, I don't know if you noticed this, he consistently mispronounces his own creations in interviews. And even in the making of this movie, he calls the Gungans Gungans. He calls Naboo Nabu. He's called the planet Hoth Hoth. Count Duoku. It's like... Dude, you made this stuff. How is it pronounced? Like, please do it consistently.
1: I think (laughs) in the world of Lucas, it's like, does the canon? Well, one could argue, does the canon change if he pronounces it one way and then changes it the next day? Is it now suddenly, oh, the canon is it should be pronounced. Gungan. The Gungans. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Number two reason why this wasn't better. The plot holes. So instead of blowing up the Death Star, our hero blows up the ship that controls all the robots. It's like poetry. Sort of rhymes. Hopefully.
1: Oh, God. Oh, that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> uh,
0: this movie's plot is Swiss cheese. It, there's This might be a first and only time for this podcast. I don't know how to tally it, but there there very well may be a plot hole in every single part of this movie which is impressive i have to say i have to give lucas credit for that he made a plot hole almost throughout the entire movie it feels like a first draft to me okay well anton is just mentally preparing himself for this are you ready for these plot holes ready as i'll ever be <laughs> i i want to start with palpatine's plan what was his plan here Bear with me for a second. Okay. Presumably, his plan was to manufacture a galactic crisis in the form of the Trade Federation's blockade and invasion of Naboo, right? And then he was going to subsequently take advantage of the chaos to get himself elected chancellor, right? hmm Yet, he keeps insisting to the Trade Federation That he, quote, wants that treaty signed so that the invasion can be made legal. But if the invasion is legalized, wouldn't that end the crisis? Right. Wouldn't that ruin his chance to seize power? Like, wouldn't, isn't it in his best interest to prolong the crisis crisis as much as possible? Like he later does with the Clone Wars?
1: Part of it, one could argue part of it's the optics, but I totally agree
0: with you. Uh, okay, here's my trade federation questions. And if you don't have an answer, just say there is no answer because I don't know that there is to some of these.
1: What are the trade federation's
0: motives? Like, why are they colluding with Sidious to begin with? So they're powerful enough that they have their own representatives in the Senate and they have their own army. What are they getting out of this relationship? That's what I,
1: it's never explained and I don't get it. You don't actually know. Well, so you kind of get a hint in the third movie, right? When Anakin is sent to, like, you know, go trash the nemoidians Tie up loose ends. Yeah. And they say, wait, we were told at the end of this there'd be peace. So. But there was peace what, before. There, there was peace before. So one could assume it was we can have the Nemoidians are very, like, money driven, right? As is a lot of the universe, so one could assume it was trying to say, setting up in a new new galactic order, Nemoidians would be in place to like make more money in a peaceful society. But flimsy. you don't really you don't really set that up well. Very
0: flimsy. Yeah. What is Naboo selling that the Federation is taxing? It's never explained. Spice. Uh, oil Uh, why does the trade federation have a droid army what does the trade federation have to gain by invading Naboo and killing its citizens Qui-Gon even points this out to Amidala he says there's no logic behind this my suggestion to Lucas here would be don't have your characters point out plot holes
1: yeah kind of it was just kind of an asshole move
0: enough about the trade federation uh, Anton, what are your problems with these
1: plot holes? Oh, we we touched on Watto before, and <laughs> Watto tells Quaggon that he's the only dealer with the engine parts that they need, and Quaggon's like, "Sounds good." Um, didn't want to go around, you know, maybe the yeah. other um scrap uh, scrap heaps and junkyards throughout Tatooine where they literally have thousands of ships and parts. Watto seems so trustworthy yeah Watto wouldn't just say that to drive up a price not like we've ever no. been to a flea market and say no this is the best price i can give you well you just you just identified one of the biggest
0: problems with this plot so when they get to tatooine right they're trying to get to coruscant and the hyperdrive is leaking they don't need a new hyperdrive though they just need a ship all they why all they had to do was just sell the ship or and buy another ship, or just hire a ship like Luke and Obi Wan
1: do in A New Hope. It never occurs to them to do this, which which would have been way cooler um, to do like that. Is just like oh, why don't we just hijack a new ship or like get on a new ship because then that's actually more of a true poetic like uh, mirror, um, like poetry kind of sometimes it rhymes. I think Qui-Gon's pretty incompetent of a Jedi,
0: and I know that might sound like blasphemy, but like, hear me out here. Yep. He will do mind tricks on someone to get them to sell him apart for worthless Republic credits, right? But he won't Mm -hmm. use force when the guy tells him, no, mind tricks don't work on me. He's just like, oh, okay. It's like you're willing to mentally trick someone, but you're not willing to use any other scrupulous methods to get off this planet. Remember, we're in the middle of a galactic crisis.
1: Yeah, there's, I, they, and they, it's funny because they do present Quagon as the character that has, that is morally gray, or at least sees, does not see quite eye to eye with the council. So I wouldn't be, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a surprise to see Quagon figure out some sort of alternate way to get the part. Well, he, he he has an alternate way and it takes a while. Yeah, it does. He really wanted to see a pod race. (laughs) Anakin's mother, her
0: name's Shmi, which is Mm -hmm. also the name of Captain Hook's assistant. I just thought that was funny. So she's also a slave, right? What does she do? Because she spends, she seems to spend her time hanging out in their house, like cooking and whatnot. She even has time to attend her son's pod race. But what
1: does she do as a slave? She's never seen working for Watto. Uh, She's working on the water uh, water fields. I don't know. Oh, is that what it is? I was was just making a guess. Just (laughs) (laughs) Uh, moving ahead here. Um, Here's
0: one of the I think this is a huge plot hole. How do the Sith know that the Queen and her squad are on Tatooine? Because this gets revealed right after Obi-Wan tells the Queen's people, like, don't respond to that hollow message. So, like, did they not listen to him and respond? Because if so, it's never explained or mentioned again. It's never brought up again. Yeah. No. No
1: real. Nope. No.
0: Nothing there. Again, I just want to remind everyone here: we are in the middle of a galactic crisis involving the invasion and, I, I, I guess, mass killing of Naboo people. And, you know, Qui-Gon correctly tells Obi-Wan over the radio like we're running out of time. But they really fart around on Tatooine. In the midst of this crisis, they have time to only look for parts at one junk dealer. They go to a slave's house to have dinner with him and his mother. Now, there is a sandstorm, so we'll give them a pass for that. They inquire about the boy. He performs a blood test. They place bets on a pod race. They attend a pod race. It's like you're really taking your time here. Again, he could have just stolen the parts, but I understand this is the plot. They had to get Anakin inserted into the plot, and this was the only way to do it. I get it.
1: But was it the only way?
0: <laughs> of course it wasn't the only way. This is just, it's a terribly written plot. It's the way this they, is, it's the way this they is chose. what we got. It's
1: the way they chose.
0: Yeah. Other problems with the plot. Uh, Supreme Chancellor Z- General Zod. Right. I'm sorry, I mean Valorum, right? So his solution in the middle, in the beginning of the movie, his solution to this crisis on Naboo was to send an uh, an independent team to investigate, right? Or at least that's what he tells the Senate that he's going to do once Padme gets to Coruscant and presents her case to the Senate, right? He's like, well, I'll send an independent team to investigate. But he already sent the two Jedi there. So is their testimony
1: not enough? are the jedi not trusted? Like I thought he already did this. So it is it is confusing and I wouldn't want to give too much credit to Lucas to say, "Oh yeah, that just shows that just shows that there already was unrest in terms of trusting the Jedi." No, they don't. Speaking no. of the Jedi, when
0: they finally get to the council and they update the council, Mace Windu, he tells Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, we will use all of our resources to unravel this mystery. We will discover the identity of your attacker, right? He's referring to Darth Maul.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Two scenes later, Mace Windu tells them, go with the Queen to Naboo and discover the identity of her attacker. This is just, you you can't it's- contradict your own character's dialogue five minutes apart. It's its
1: bad writing. Right. And, and they... That's I'd like to call that a lack of resources, especially considering the appearance of Darth Maul also meant the first like surfacing of a Sith in years. Like that was a pretty big deal. They don't believe
0: him either. They're like, that's impossible to sit. It's like, dude, this guy wearing a black robe had a red lightsaber. Like, who do you think it was?
1: <laughs> that's so, I just wish who else could it have been? Say that. Like the dude had a red lightsaber.
0: Yes. Oh, by the way, uh, it was red. Yeah. And they're like, oh. The, but the, the Mace Windu thing, the reason why I want to highlight it is that's – I think that's like definitive proof that there was nobody fact-checking or second-guessing George Lucas in any way. That That's a perfect example of something that would not survive what's called a script polish. Like anybody looking at the script would just be like, well, that doesn't make sense because two scenes he would have contradicted. No. Didn't happen. Another plot. This is not really a plot hole just as so much. This has been much lampooned on the internet. But how is someone elected queen at 14 years old? As a ruler, Amidala, played by Natalie Portman, she is responsible for an entire planet. So this planet, Naboo, they elected a literal child to make decisions on their behalf. And this is where I present my case to you about the Trade Federation not being the bad guys in this movie. If your planet is dumb enough to elect an eighth grade age child to make decisions on your behalf as an absolute monarch, you deserve to be invaded. You deserve it. You have it coming. Yeah,
1: no, they I I wonder if this was a case where they <laughs> maybe they play in this universe, they try to say the term queen maybe is more of a I don't know. It, the title isn't the same as we would assume here on in our universe. She has a throne, but but she has quite queenly air and like surroundings. So elected queen, elected queen. Yeah. Well, she didn't keep that title long. Let's just say that. No, she became a, a highly successful senator,
0: which really worked out well for her.
1: Huge downfall.
0: <laughs> yeah, didn't end well for her. No. But anyway, Padme, this is the other part of it. So you know how she has the double that's played by Kira Knightley? Right. Which d- doesn't really have any impact on the plot. But did you notice something? I only noticed this on my like 20th rewatch, so maybe it's not a huge plot hole, but it's kind of funny when you think about it. They never tell the Jedi at any point that she's using a decoy. Like Remember when Padme ends up going with, um, with Qui-Gon and Jar Jar? Mm-hmm. and r2d2 like into into the um into the town where they meet anakin she's like well the queen uh, what's the bodyguard say like the queen wants one of her handmaidens to go with you it's like this is the queen and maybe you should tell the jedi knight that like oh by the way we're using a decoy can you make sure she doesn't get shot never never happens
1: nope
0: there's also a scene on the ship right after they escape naboo did you notice the decoy queen orders Amadala,
1: the real queen, to clean up R2D2? <laughs> That's so well. I like to think of that as like the, the decoy queen was like, I like to flex. I'm gonna I'm, flex here. I, I've had enough of your shit. Clean that droid. <laughs> <sighs> uh, oh man. Uh, Keep going with the plot holes. I, I've oh man. I mean, so Quagon finds out that Anakin has been immaculately conceived isn't that convenient and no one decides to follow up on it they just never <laughs> bring it up again it seems like a big deal it's it's just never, never mentioned it. again oh my and like they're just like You've, you never had a dad <laughs>
0: she's <laughs> like, like there was no father and he's just like okay damn seems reasonable
1: <laughs> damn <laughs>
0: No, it's you. I don't know. They never. That's never mentioned again in the series.
1: No, I think what's uh, tough too here is is that the Jedi Council scenes, um, they're, they're, they're lacking. You know, they're they're incomplete. They're just snippets of larger conversations. Um, every single scene just begins mid conversation. They end abruptly. Um, the Jedi Council scenes were some of the most disappointing, and yeah. I was really, I was really looking forward to that, especially when you're introducing Mace Windu, Yoda, and like this was something that I think a lot of Star Wars fans was looking forward to. This was like the heyday of the Jedi, and this is what we got. Yeah, I, you're,
0: I, I, agree. it's some of the most disappointing parts of the movies for me. I had been looking forward to the Jedi Council stuff ever since I had found out the movie was going to come out, and it, yeah, it, it's there's just
1: not much to it. I don't know what else to say about that. Um, but oh, I think question here, why why do the Gungans ab- abandon their underwater cities? Wouldn't an amphibious species be better off hiding underwater than on land? You'd think. Right. And I mean, speaking of that, why does a Trade Federation even bother looking for the underwater cities? G- uh like what threat do the Gungans pose to the occupation of the planet? Now, I had a theory that maybe the trade federation wants to use the natural resources on the planet and the Gungans are actually a protected species. And so they would need to either clear out the species or force them to like move their settlements to be able to utilize the natural resources of the planet.
0: You're talking about something that would have logically made sense. Right. Right. But it, it, but it made it made zero sense. Speaking of the Gungans, why does Boss Nass make Jar Jar Binks the general of the army? Like, is he trying to get the whole army killed?
1: Mm. This is
0: uh, just for some context. This is the village idiot who is so much of a village idiot he was exiled, and he comes back, and they're like,
1: <laughs> "Would you like to control our entire army?" I don't know for sure, but I always thought of it as like this is nepotism at its best. Like Boss Nass is like. Ah, uh, you made it back alive. Sure. You know, here's a job. <laughs> I know you. I... Anakin is the one who
0: ends up destroying the control ship, the droid control ship. It's entirely by accident. So he's flying around up there, right, with the rest of the Naboo pilots. What
1: was their plan to destroy the ship? Was It was just to, like, fly around? Right. There was no... Yeah, the, the, there was no actual strategy scene, right? No versus versus like you watch the original uh film they're talking about like um the compromised portion of the death star to fire into. This yeah. was just literally, "Hey, let's 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 go in a battle."
0: It happens in Return of the Jedi too. They're like the the, the death star is protected by the shield. We're going to land a team on this forest moon of Endor. We're going to knock out the shield generator and that's how we're going to attack the death star. It's like, "Okay, cool." Pretty straightforward here. They're just like fly up there and try to blow this thing up. Yeah, I mean, there's like I said, almost every scene has a plot hole. Amidala and her security guards they capture the Viceroy before the droid ship gets con- the droid control ship gets destroyed. They don't make any attempt for him to shut it down. The big plot issue here, and this will set things up to some of the issues that will occur in episodes two and three. Mm-hmm. I forgot about how much doubt the Jedi Council has about Anakin initially. Obi-Wan's basically forced to train him because they feel bad about Qui-Gon dying at the end of the movie, right? Right. And Yoda's straight up like, this kid's bad news. I don't even agree that he should be trained, but the council finally agrees to train him. But like, They just set him up as this bad apple who
1: represents every red flag imaginable. That's it. That's all Lucas could come up with. It would have made more sense if there was something... I I don't necessarily think that it's the worst thing in the world for that. That's how Anakin gets pushed into the role, because you start to see a bit of that in his, like while it's not a perfect performance, you start to see a bit of that in his personality in the second film. Like I'm going to prove I am meant to be here kind of thing. And that Mm -hmm. actually lends more to the council being right. Like, no, no, this guy's out here to like prove himself his midichlorians are off the chart but like that's dangerous especially with the way that he like considers like good and bad midichlorians so, huh yeah yeah they're uh yeah of course right midichlorians that's that explains the force it, um it, yeah it's
0: uh nobody liked the midichlorians being introduced it it's i don't have a lot to say about it it's a bizarre choice but I, before I let this go, so just for the record, for, for all the listeners, you're on the record now that you
1: don't feel that Hayden Christensen's <laughs> performance was perfect. Oh, oh man. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and say it. It okay. was not perfect. Just so we're clear on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know that's, that's a hot take. I know that's a hot
0: take. Do you think Garrett Headland could have done better? No. <laughs> Fair. Well, we'll talk about Hayden Christensen more in the, in the next star Wars film that we cover.
1: Yep. Well,
0: this is a lengthy
1: list of plot holes. It is. It is. I mean like midichlorians, if there was ever any, if there was ever anything in the films in any star Wars film where they're trying to ground themselves in reality, why ground the most, one of the most like, mystified like pseudo religious aspects why try to ground that in reality i don't
0: know they don't do anything with it either you know what i mean it's not like the power levels in dragon ball z where there's a there's a very tangible effect on how these impact fights between characters yeah it's never really brought up again i don't think they mentioned midichlorians in episode two or three as far as i know Mm. yeah i don't know I, nothing, I don't have anything else to say about it i think we should move on to the third reason yeah. why this wasn't better
1: fair enough unless you have any other plot holes you want to highlight i think no There, there's a lot of plot holes there maybe how about this uh listeners if you want even more plot holes in like maybe like the recap episode let us know we have them on deck but
0: yeah, we're skipping. So, like, we have more listed here. It's just in the interest of time. Yeah. This film is Swiss cheese. Like, it is. Yeah, listeners, let us know what you think. If you want more plot holes, if you want us to list all the plot holes in future episodes, let us know, and we will. So the third reason why this wasn't better is the acting. The performances in this film, some of the flattest, most wooden, lifeless performances you will ever see in a major blockbuster.
1: Um. Yeah.
0: You can tell Lucas was giving every actor the same direction. They all speak in the same monotone voice, approaching every single conflict with the same level of emotion. They look confused in a lot of the scenes. So Jake Lloyd, what are your thoughts on him?
1: It's hard because, you know, a a lot of people were annoyed with his performance and like to give him a lot of shit, but he was a kid and I'm assure you, they probably told him to just act like a kid and that's what he did. And that's how his character was written. So can you really fault him? Yes.
0: <laughs> I, I think you can. Uh, I, it, yes. You, I know what you mean though. It's ultimately the blame is on, is on Lucas's. He, he probably shouldn't have cast him. When you hear that, like Haley, Joel Osment audition for the role. And the performances that he gave as a child actor. It's a missed opportunity for sure. That he yeah. went, you know, Lucas decided to go with the kid from Jingle all the way. But yeah, I'm not I don't want to say any I don't want to say too many negative things about Jake Lloyd. I I know what you mean. The quote unquote star of this movie, Liam Neeson, he looks pretty bored throughout. I think he he ultimately saved this movie. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: he he does a good job of being stoic, yep, but he, he does look bad. bored in a lot of scenes. There was I think that there definitely was maybe some coaching communicating to communicating to the actors playing any Jedi don't put emotions too strongly whether it's like mad sad whatever that these are yeah. supposed to be very stoic characters and I feel like that kind of directing to um, for the actors came off as a little I don't know. It's a little bland. I agree. Even
0: Ewan McGregor's bland in this movie. He's, no, he's okay. Like He he does an okay job. I, he would really find his footing in the next film, for sure. Natalie Portman, very bland. They might as well have made her character CGI with all the makeup she had on in a lot of scenes.
1: Which And it's just so surprising because Natalie Portman, even before the film, had a lot of experience. Um, she was in The Professional as a child, and that was a great performance from her. Definitely. So just a bummer.
0: Speaking of Natalie Portman, this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, and I can't really find an explanation for it. Right after Padme and her bodyguards capture the Viceroy, this is very, very quick, so if you're rewatching the movie after this podcast, pay attention for it. Natalie Portman's voice drastically changes, and she says the line, Now, voice, Viceroy, we'll discuss a new treaty. She's doing some exaggerated, like low-pitched like, pirate voice. Yeah, or either that or Lucas altered her voice in post-production. But either way, it's it really it always stands out to me when I rewatch the movie. It's a bizarre choice.
1: You can tell there was a lot. And I don't know, maybe it was just the way that the film was directed. Maybe actors weren't used to filming in front of green screen. I don't think they were. And not having like full sets, not being able to really absorb and get into character. I could see that impacting an actor's ability to just really you know, lose themselves in the scene. That's yeah, just definitely.
0: Terrence Stamp in particular, who played uh, Valorum, the Supreme Chancellor, he hated making this movie famously. He's not even in the movie much, but he had a lot to say about it yeah, afterwards. Yeah. I just think it is telling that the, the two most interesting characters in this movie, Qui-Gon and Darth Maul, they're the only ones to die. But yeah. it is what it is.
1: Yeah, I still hold out hope. That for Darth Maul's character, they do reintroduce him into one of the current, like, sequel series. Or maybe if they do, like, an Obi-Wan sequel series to the most recent one that came out. Because he does make an appearance again. And not to spoil too many things, but that's just uh, hopefully enticing folks to watch the Clone Wars series on Disney+. Plus.
0: I did like the Clone Wars series, but I did not like how they brought back Maul. I don't like this is one of my yeah. pet peeves in any movie. Like, no, that guy died. He got cut in half and fell down an elevator shaft or whatever. He died.
1: The way they the, the I thought though, the way that he had like a goodbye with with Obi Wan though, I thought that was nice. And I thought that was um poetic. I hated it. <laughs>
0: Actually, I don't even think I saw it. Yeah. I don't know. Number four reason why this wasn't better. The CGI and the cinematography. I have a quote here from Mr. George Lucas himself from an interview way back in 1983. Quote, a special effect is a tool, a means of telling a story. People have a tendency to confuse them as an end to themselves. A special effect without a story is, pr- is a pretty boring thing. End quote.
1: Jeez, that is like so embarrassing. He said that. Yeah.
0: Special effects are not special when they're in every single shot of the movie. That's all I have to say. Now, I have to say, this film was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. I give Lucas credit for his ambition for trying to push the envelope in terms of like what CGI was capable of. I think he bit off more than he can chew mm-hmm. with this movie. But I do respect the ambition and the effort. For all the hate that we've given Lucas creatively on, on this episode, and you know, Star Wars fans have given him a lot of hate in general we should remind ourselves of all the great that he's done he would have filmed this digitally if he could the cameras just weren't available to him at the time i do respect that ambition on his part he was really trying to do as much as he could with cgi and
1: and wanted to put up there too cgi has improved immensely since this film so much so that like it's at that point where if you don't notice cgi it there's a lot of films out there where you may not notice it but there's Definitely CGI in it. And that's called and of course the CGI doing its doing its job. Yes. But this was maybe the wild west of CGI, or at least diving into it so immensely. There is
0: some really impressive CGI in this movie, actually. And a lot a lot of it does hold up 24 years later. I was I was actually impressed by a lot of it. The problem is the sheer volume of it. It ends up working against the movie. There is so much CGI crammed into virtually every shot. That you just end up with very uneven quality. It's a case of his ambition really like working against him. Like, um, the best example of this is the ground battle of Naboo at the end of the movie and the climax. They chose to set that scene at high noon with no clouds in the sky, all these bright colors. And a quick sidebar how much does the finality of Black Panther resemble this one? Pretty closely. But. uh, yeah, a lot of the CGI has, I think, aged poorly. I think the background stuff that they did, like um, um, the swim to Otaganga, the Coruscant stuff, and some of the Naboo shots, like the droid army landing on Naboo, I think that stuff holds up. The issue is in the animated characters themselves. That's the That's the CGI, in my opinion, that's aged the worst. Jar Jar, the rest of the gunk, and Sabalba, even like the the brief glimpse we get of Jabba the Hutt, a lot of that stuff just is showing its age in a bad way. Right. But the highlight of the movie, the Pod Race, that holds up the best. That's still some of the best CGI I think ever put to film. And if you're gonna praise this movie for anything, it should be that.
1: Well, maybe not the most love, beloved scene. It did look really good. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, watching it now in 4K on my big TV, pretty cool. It's cool. Could you say that's where the money went with the CGI budget? I'm sure it was. Yeah.
0: And look, I mean, like I said, it's I respect the ambition on Lucas's part. I I'm I'm never going to hold it against a director like him for trying to do as much as he can with this technology. It's just, you know, when you're relying on CGI that much. It's just sometimes it's just not going to work out that well for you in the long run. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you watch this, if you have a good sound system, this is an awesome surround sound movie to watch. Lucas always puts a lot of effort into his sound design in these movies.
1: Was there maybe a character, or, or were there maybe more characters that kind of showed the strengths and weaknesses of CGI? Yes, I I think Jar Jar
0: was animated like Goofy, like a cartoon. The one character that held up to me was Watto I was kind of surprised by him he actually has a bunch of shots where he's required to his the the animation is required to do like actual acting like when he loses the bet to -hmm. Qui-Gon and he's like he's like it wasn't a fair bet you can't have the boy and Qui-Gon's like do you want me to bring this up with the with the uh, with the Huts? and he's just like take him it's actually like I was surprised how well that held up I agree with that yeah cinematography pretty uninteresting considering the budget of these movies i don't think any of the prequel movies are per, are filmed particularly well i think this is the best looking of the prequels which is odd until you realize this is the one that was shot on 35 millimeter the next two mm-hmm. were filmed digitally and that was pretty early digital film and i think the next two films have a much
1: flatter far less interesting look there were certain scenes you could see cgi and technology improving throughout each film and it's why i feel like they were able to go to much extreme much more extreme climates and atmospheres and planets in the few in the in the next couple of films but even just trying to capture like even just trying to capture some of the some of the scenery in the film for the phantom menace it just seemed like it just re- it really felt like there was a green screen and that was hard for me and I'm yeah. a big fan of, you know, on set. So I don't know why they didn't just go to tattooing and film there. Well, they did film some
0: stuff in, tu- in Tunisia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you're you're right. You can, it's, it's tough. It is tough. So this movie, here's some trivia time for you, Anton, was nominated for three Academy Awards, sound mixing, sound design, and visual effects. It lost all three to which film? All right, so. 1999. 1999
1: mixing sound design and visual effects
0: it's an obvious one judgment day no that was way earlier mm. that was 91 i'll give you a hint we covered one of the sequels on this podcast already we covered the sequel to the movie the this oh, movie lost the these Ma- awards to the matrix yeah 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 the matrix won four academy awards um, damn good yeah all right, we yeah. we pretty much had a lot of negative stuff to say about like the visuals of this movie. What what did it get right? The make, you know, the technical production of this movie. What did it get right? The design stuff is cool. But John Williams, man, he delivered.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he brought the A game. Cannot, the score is wonderful. You cannot deny how just like how much this movie lives because of the music and it's just fantastic
0: duel of um, the fates is one of the finest pieces of music ever put to film
1: legend the rest of the score is great too though yeah have you like how have you interpreted have you interpreted even this the um the title of that duel of the fates uh i mean over the years i'm
0: mm-hmm. enough of a nerd that i've like read a read about it and it you mm-hmm. know it's I don't know how I've interpreted it, but I I agree with the theory that it had to do with, um, battling for like Anakin's soul, Anakin's right. future. Right. You know, it, it make, it's yeah. a, it's an appropriate title. Speaking of s- titles in this score, though, I have a story to tell. I've saved mm-hmm. it for this. So this score was released on May fourth, nineteen ninety nine, on CD, and my father was kind enough to purchase it for me. Right. So this is two weeks before the film comes out. I don't know how how this like. They allowed this to be released. There are two tracks on the score. One of them is called Qui-Gon's Noble End, and the other one is called The High Council Meeting and Qui-Gon's Funeral. So going into this movie, I already knew that Qui-Gon Jinn was going to die. That's the first time in my life I had a major movie spoiled for me. And I'm not talking about like you read Lord of the Rings and you know what happens. I don't mean something like that. Right. But I, I remember, even like, like as an eleven-year-old kid, reading this on the back of the CD, and I was like, "Huh, I guess he dies."
1: Yeah, um, I also had a portion of the film spoiled for me, but it was because of I, I picked up a book at the Scholastic Book Fair. Shouts out to Scholastic Book Fairs. I hope those still go on. Um, I remember those, and it and it was a book that it was a book that also included portions of the pod race and the results of the pod race. What? Um, yeah. And it was just, it was m- more geared toward kids. And I just remember like, uh, I-, I just remember like, oh yeah. And then you read like Anakin gets freed and I'm just like, oh cool. I guess I'll see that in the theater, but Yeah. It's also very fun and nostalgic to think about that film and then like what was my mental state as like a child or like yeah. what, what was what, what was top of mind for Anton in 1999, which was basically like, I want to get cool shit at the Scholastic Book Fair and learn how to skateboard. I too have fond memories of Scholastic Book Fairs. Yeah.
0: Now this is podcasting. <laughs> Why wasn't this better? You know, we talked about the storytelling, the characters, the tonal shifts. We talked about the plot holes. We talked about the performances. We talked about the over-reliance on CGI and the production overall. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap this up?
1: It's a big film and there's a lot that we didn't go over, but even then we went over a lot. So yeah, it's hard. It is. So if there's anything that I've learned reviewing, Reviewing movies and dissecting them and looking at what could have made them better, living up to expectations is hard, and there's no getting around that. So, it's is yeah, it's a heavy task.
0: Did we like it?
1: Oof, oof. Your verdict. Um, My verdict. Um, I'm gonna go ahead. So instead of going through like my assessment, I'm gonna give my rating first, and then I'll talk about it so for me i'm giving this movie a d minus now giving it a d minus i will say this i do enjoy watching this film it's funny because i'll give it a d minus and i think about objectively this is a very bad film the plot makes no sense the cgi looks terrible but i enjoy going back and watching it just because like i still really enjoy star wars and there's a lot to laugh at and it's very memeable and it's in that sense, it can be entertaining, but then it can also be very depressing. Um, there's also a bit of nostalgia going back and seeing this film. So there's a little bit of that that I hold on to when I go back and see this film. But no getting around it. Everything that we touched on, everything that everyone's touched on throughout the years, it's hard to... it's It's... It's hard to give this movie any more credit just because it was really bad. So I'm giving it a D minus. What about you, Pat? Well,
0: I'm glad you brought up like trying to put yourself in the mindset of yourself at the age you were when this came out. I wanted to like this movie more than anything. We all did. At one point in my life, probably like many of us, I went through a period where I tried to convince myself that this movie was a lot better. It's not that bad. It's pretty good. You know, Jar Jar was stupid, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the pod race was cool. The answer to the question, did I like it, is no, not really. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to fall into the revisionism trap with these prequels. Nobody liked these movies when they came out, especially Phantom Menace. People were a little bit more... Or I should say, much more warmer on Revenge of the Sith. But the best description of Revenge of the Sith is, well, it's the best of the prequels, which kind of just tells you how the prequels were received at the time. Everything that you read about this movie is, I think, true. It's the most disappointing movie of all time, and it's probably not close. The, the potential for this entire trilogy was so, so promising, and Lucas absolutely fumbled this because of just his own i don't want to call it laziness but i'm gonna to have to call it laziness now the point you made earlier about our expectations maybe they were impossibly high for this movie but that's how these things go right sorry it's a star wars prequel it's gonna be the most hyped movie of all time this had the most extreme hype to results ratio probably of any movie we're gonna cover it didn't deliver on really anything that anyone was looking forward to seeing, or should I say myself, that I was looking forward to seeing. I can only speak for myself here. I give this a D plus for a rating. It's poorly written, it's poorly acted, it's poorly paced, and it has an over-reliance on visual effects that have mostly aged like milk. Now, that being said, I actually do enjoy rewatching this movie every couple of years. On the Matrix Reloaded podcast, I remarked, how with the Star Wars prequels, they were, I th- i think I said they're a lot more fun to hate. I stand by that. My wife and I mm-hmm. went to a cocktail bar recently and they were showing Phantom Menace just mm-hmm. at the bar and everyone at the bar was united in trashing the movie as we were, we were right. having a good time making fun of it. And it was funny because my wife had never seen Phantom Menace and mm-hmm. she's like, this is a Star Wars movie. She's like, this looks because re- you couldn't hear the sound. You just had the subtitles on. She was like, This seems ridiculous. I'm like, Oh, it is ridiculous, but it's fun to watch. That's all so, I can really say.
1: Yeah. So th- th- it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. Something I want to touch on and like this, like, united front. Have you seen, like, there's a Star Wars ride? Um, I think it's like Rise of the Resistance. And, It's a trackless ride. It's a pretty big deal right now, like uh, Disney World, Disneyland. And it's from the perspective of like A Force Awakens and like that cast and crew. Have you you seen that ride? No. So it's like, as a Star Wars fan, it was fun for me to go through and like you get to see all of the stormtroopers. But once you see that they're really using characters from like, the Force Awakens trilogy, it's I, I found it pretty unbearable. Like, I do not like those characters. To me, it's just even... It's a worse experience compared to, like, the Phantom Menace trilogy, because they just, like... It feels so soulless. At least this, right, was connected. Like, this, this was George... This came out of George Lucas's head at least. Yes.
0: Yeah. No, I agree I fully agree with you. For better or worse, this is a product of George Lucas. And I don't know if I've I probably mentioned this to you before. I've seen The Force Awakens. I did not see the other two sequel movies. I had no interest. Good. The Good. Force Awakens, it's- I will concede, is a better is a far better made movie than any of the prequel movies, but it's a to me it was far more boring yeah and i I had no pleasure watching it it had better acting it had probably better writing it had better effects uh it had better humor in it but it was so unoriginal that i had no i took no pleasure from watching it and for whatever reason these these three films and in particular the phantom menace as poorly written poorly acted poorly paced as it is
1: i do enjoy rewatching it i don't know why but i do I would rather see, I would rather go on a ride at Disneyland or Disney World that brought us back to Phantom Menace. Cause at yeah. least I could smile. Fair enough. Well, that is it
0: for this episode and this basically this season of Why Wasn't It Better? We will be Boom. back. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. We will be back, like we said in the intro, we will be back with a recap of the season and a preview of what the listeners can expect on the next season. But that won't be a, um, a particularly long episode, I wouldn't think. So we'll, uh, we'll get that out to you. And then um, I will give listeners a hint for the first movie that I want to cover on season two. It is the third movie in a series, and in exactly one month from now... It will be the 20th anniversary of this movie. It is also one of the most highly anticipated sequels of all time. Anton, you're just staring at me.
1: It's Babe 2 Pig in the City.
0: How did you know? <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, I'll, I'll probably tell every. I'll tell you what it is when we do the recap episode. But anyway, that is it for this edition of Why Wasn't It Better. As always, this podcast was produced by Eric Taylor, who also provided us with the music. We will see you next time.